With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alison Chantel, and this is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. This week, we've got a very different view of what success looks like. We're speaking with a Tibetan Buddhist monk who's also a best-selling author, Matthew Ricard. Business Insider senior reporter Rich Filoni spoke with him while he was promoting his new book, Beyond the Self, which he co-authored with neuroscientist Wolf Singer. Maybe when I die, they would be on my tomb. Here lies the happiest person in the world. If happiness is a form of success, you might want to look to Matthew Ricard. Neuroscientists found that Ricard has some of the highest levels of positive emotions of anyone they've ever studied. So the media started calling him the happiest man alive, but he doesn't buy it. It's kind of a sweet joke. As you'll hear, Ricard says there are two types of success, how much good you can do in the world and your own inner happiness. For the last 50 years, Ricard has lived in Nepal, often with no electricity or running water. But monkhood has hardly meant isolation in the Himalayas. He's become a best-selling author and given not one but two viral TED Talks. He's also found his way into the Dalai Lama's inner circle. I started by pointing out that for a show named Success, Ricard may be our only guest who would ever object to being called successful. It all depends on the definition of success. Is it simply becoming the richest, most powerful, most famous, most beautiful, most everything? Success, personally, I feel is in terms of personal flourishing, that means fulfilling the deepest aspiration you might have in life. And then when you have sort of gained some kind of uh, inner strength, inner freedom, and you know you have the resources to deal with the ups and downs of life, then you feel less vulnerable, then the success is actually to translate that into serving society, serving others. So to transform yourself to serve others, if you can bring that to an optimal point, then for me that's what we call success. <laughs> <laughs> so you were born in France in 1946 to a famous writer and a painter, and they were involved in an intellectual society. You got to meet people like the composer Igor Stravinsky, the photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson. What was that like? Were seeds planted to become who you are today? Well, in a way, it was a eye-opening, more retrospectively, because there was a kind of you know fascination. You look at those persons, and they are eminent in their own field. But even though they were extraordinary genius in their own way, that would not correlate, obviously, with basic human quality that is the thing you really appreciate in someone else. So you could have, uh, if you take 100 philosophers, 100 gardeners, 100 musicians, 100 scientists, you find more or less the same distribution of very good people and people who 
you know, <laughs> don't feel very well to be with and sometimes obnoxious people. And then, but you, you say, well, are they a role model, not just because of their specialty, but as a human being? And the answer is no. Then you wonder, well, who could be a role model? Or who could have this coherence between their knowledge, their skills, their wisdom, and the way they are? So that was the big difference when I met great men and women of wisdom. It suddenly, you know, there was a complete coherence between themselves and their teachings or what they are supposed to represent, which was like wisdom and compassion, because they were embodying it every single moment. You cannot say, oh, this is a great spiritual master. What a pity is is so nervous, angry, jealous. It doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it it seems to be a mature insight that you had as a young person. What were you like as a kid growing up? Well, you know, I was (laughs) basically like any other kid. Um, Yes, I had interest in a lot of things like, uh, I don't know, bird watching, astronomy, sailing, skiing. Music, I, I played a lot of classical music. So yes, I had a lively uh, youth and, uh, and as a teenager. At the same time, you know, this is the age where you know what you don't want your life to be like. I mean, it's boring, meaningless, sort of um, sense of, yes, failure in the sense of not accomplishing anything worth it. But you don't really know what what really you could be the way to have a fulfilled life. What was your first exposure to Buddhism and what did it answer for you? So when I was a teenager, I was sort of broadly interested in what we call spirituality. Uh, but it's only when I traveled uh, just uh, you know, in 1967 and thanks to have seen some documentaries on all the great masters and met them that suddenly I realized, okay, here... Uh, men and women of great wisdom, of great compassion, so, 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 exemplify inner freedom and you know, bringing human quality to the optimal state. So that's, that brought me a sense of, okay, here are uh, masters or people. I know that now that I can work with them through their guidance, a, a kind of part of, to become a better human being. And was embracing Buddhism almost a rebellion against the kind of thought and philosophy that you were exposed to at that time? No, you know, I never felt either rebellion or also people say, oh, you left, you know, the life in Paris, you left Pasteur Institute. You know, when you, you do, like I wish I do often now, <laughs> walking in the mountains in the Himalayas, when you leave a valley, you come to a mountain pass, and you come to discover from the top of the past a beautiful valley with some lakes and forests and whatever, you know, you suddenly discover something very inspiring. You are not thinking, I'm rejecting, abandoning the valley which you have been crossing that also had some qualities. So simply it's a new sort of phase of life, a new landscape. And so, yes, so it's more like discovering something new and feeling very enthusiastic about it rather than this sort of slightly negative idea of giving up, rejecting, abandoning, and so forth. And you decided to finish your studies before moving to the Himalayas. Before you made that move, were there any doubts in your mind? No, I think it was a good timeline. I guess if I had left uh, too early, somehow it was like, you know, making a mess of all the efforts my parents had. They were not very wealthy to give me an education. So it's like it 
would have looked like sort of breaking something. So, and also it gave me time to mature that decision clearly. So I, I never had any hesitation. It's like, a, you know, you ask if a, a, a fruit or a pear that is maturing on the tree, it doesn't have hesitation. But at some point, uh, you don't have to pull and break the branch to get the fruit. It's just touch it and it falls in your hand. So when something is ready, I just feel so fortunate that at 26, I could live and spend those now 50 years with those great masters. I mean, I would not want to change anything at that. And I congratulate myself at all times that I could, I was able to do that. So you're able to study with these masters in the rest of your 20s, and you became a monk when you were age 30. Not too long after that, you were able to go back home and visit. What was it like going from this completely different lifestyle back home to France? To some extent, I won't say cultural shock, but things had changed. There was new big towers in Paris, and I remember going to a radio for something. Uh, it was one of the main radio, and I said, oh, you are on FM now. And they sort of look at me and say, where is he coming from, this guy? <laughs> we are on FM for the last 10 years, you know. <laughs> and then you and your father, you collaborated on the book The Monk and the Philosopher. And this is a dialogue between you and your father exploring concepts of Buddhism and how they relate to other ways of looking at the world. What was that experience like? So he came for 10 days and we went to a resort. We made a kind of list of topics. And uh, then it was a very lovely uh, sort of 10 days where we just recorded. Nobody else was with us. We were walking in the forest recording. And then, uh, so his uh, main point was he noticed that Buddhism became quite popular in the West. And he was wondering why as a philosopher. And he realized that, you know, from his perspective, the Greek philosopher had three goals. What can I know? How to govern the city? And how to live my life? And he said, what can I know? He says, mostly sciences now giving the answers. How should I govern the city? You know, democracy, of course, it has to be used properly, but still compared to any other, anything else, it's the best system. And then how should I live my life? He felt that most of Western philosophers had given up that, and they were starting to build a lot of big philosophical sort of systems, which didn't tell you anything about how to become a good human being. So he had the insight that Buddhism was bringing some answer for our modern time, which was very a uh, sign of very open mind for someone like him. And he actually, through our discussion, became quite convinced that it was the case, of course, he didn't buy into the other aspect of Buddhism about the nature of consciousness, about all kinds of things that are just a little bit more like Buddhist business. But as a way of being, as an art of life, he was quite uh, very positive about that. So it was wonderful for me. And I think he said to someone before dying that this is something that, that really mattered for him at the end of his life. So this was not only a great experience between you and your father, but the book became a bestseller in France. <laughs> so this changed your life. Yes. Well, sometimes I jokingly said, it's either the beginning of a completely new opportunity or the beginning of my troubles. Because from a very, very quiet life, living on a shoestring, I was living sort of like $50 a month, but of course, perfectly well in a little hermitage with no electricity, no, no heating, no running water. But I can't remember any incomfort. It was such a beautiful time of my life, those seven years there. But certainly it was a big change because from one day to the other, you become recognizable in the street because with, I don't know, 15 TVs. Or, and also it shows you 
somehow, if, if people were defining in terms of success, how artificial this is, because you, you didn't change over one week. I'm just the same guy with nobody was at all care of anything about me. So you don't get a big head because you know very well it's because you have been on, on TV and radio, not because you became sensational overnight. So that's, I think, was a good lesson, which um, so I, I, never, I always take it with a grain of salt. But also I thought, how could this be used in a positive way? So there was two things. One was to uh, share ideas, which are very dear to me. And I, I think there are many wonderful ideas in Buddhist philosophy that can be applied to humanity. The second thing is because of you know, the books and starting to do things here and there, I saw some resources coming my way. So I thought, well, I don't need them, basically. I have no land, no house, no car. So why not doing something useful with that as well? So you know, philanthropists joined us, and we decided to uh, create an organization called Karuna Sechen. And now we're helping about 300,000 people in India, Nepal, and Eastern Tibet about you know, health, social services, education. So it is wonderful. At the same time, it gave a life which became a little bit uh, hectic, having 80 boarding pass in a year. So I, I thought, okay, 20 years, 97, 2017, maybe it's time to, just as I left Pasteur Institute, to explore, not give up, but you know, somehow explore a new way of for the last few years of uh, I might be alive or not, I don't know. And the Dalai Lama himself, he takes this approach where he uses his public profile to share teachings of compassion and altruism. And so you work with him closely. You're his French translator. What was it like when you first met him? So my second teacher, Diego Kensir Moshe, was a teacher to the Dalai Lama. So since I was... You know, close to Kensir Moshe, one of the two, two or three monks that were always with him. So then I became quite intimate with His Holiness, and he was always extremely kind with me. So then it happens once, I happened to be in Paris when he was there, and normally interpreting would go, he would speak in Tibetan, someone would translate in English, a third person in, in French. So he saw me and said, okay, you translate, because I, by then I spoke Tibetan. So then like that, out of the blue, I became his French interpreter and I've been since then with great gratitude. It's an immense teaching to be with him because he's the perfect example of someone who is absolutely the same uh, in private and in public. When we see so many things today, you know, these days of scandals of people's secret, terrible life, he's totally the same. He would be the same with the lady that cleans the floor in the hotel and with the head of state he's going to see an hour later. It's a human being. He sees the common humanity. He really doesn't make any difference. He's as concerned with the cleaning lady and the head of state. So that's an incredible lesson. In the year 2000, you became involved with studying the neurological effects of meditation. That's something that uh, the Dalai Lama himself is really involved in what was that like being involved in these studies where you're hooking up these things to your head and um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah so you know Dalai Lama said that if he had not been Dalai Lama he would have been an engineer or scientist <laughs> he always had this interest for it's part of the idea of exploring reality so knowing that some 
wonderful scientists like the neuroscientist Francisco Varela said, well, why don't we help the Dalai Lama to meet great scientists and maybe there is mutual benefit. So this Mind and Life Institute began like that at almost 30 years ago. And in 2000, there was a meeting in, in Dharamsala in India on destructive emotion. And there they were all the great neuroscientists. So they uh, asked me to come and present the Buddhist perspective on emotion. It's kind of funny to do that in front of the Dalai Lama, but you know, I got used to it. So then the Dalai Lama said, oh, it's very, it's very good all what we do and discuss those five days, but what can we contribute to society in a secular way that could be you know, spread in the schools, in society, in, in companies, something that would really help people for flourish? So then there was a brainstorming and the idea of bringing very good scientists with long-term meditators to do serious research on meditation. So because I was a scientist uh, training and I was there, so I said, okay, I'm happy to participate in that. So I went to Madison, Wisconsin, and then there's the first time I started to go in MRIs. I know I, I think I have been possibly more in MRI than anyone I know, but over 100 hours. So it's really a very lively uh, sort of collaboration because we sort of designed together the protocol. You know, you study meditation, but what, what meditation? What kind of meditation? How long you need to get into that state? How long takes to get out of it so that they need to know that in order to establish uh, you know the way they look in your brain uh, many of those scientists made a point to include someone like me in the co-author of the scientific paper to show that it's not just a guinea pig but really participating to the you know, conception of the research and so it's a really a wonderful collaboration so something that you want to pass on to people is giving them this ability to change themselves through practice well, one thing um, what I would love to share is definitely we vastly underestimate the power of transformation of mind. Uh, we are spending so much energy and dedication to improve outer condition, which should be. You know, we should remedy to poverty, social injustice, inequalities, you know, you know, fight for freedom and so forth. But we don't spend, far, far from spend the same amount of dedication to become a better human being by cultivating qualities, whether it's altruism, compassion, uh, you know, resilience, emotional intelligence, all those really crucial qualities for a good life and what you would call success, what I would call success, those are skills. And you can enhance them by becoming more familiar again and again and again with them. Meditation is one way of doing it, which is bringing to mind again and again compassion and dealing with thoughts more intelligently and so forth. So that's something that we should not underestimate. So you've had several best-selling books. You've had a very popular TED Talk, or a couple of them, actually. Something that the Western media always loves to tag you with is happiest man in the world. <laughs> Matthew Ricard has recently been declared the world's happiest, happiest man. man the in the happiest world. man alive. This has been kind of like the MO, no matter how much you try to uh, object against it. There was some initial trigger that we were working on the effect of compassion. It was not even happiness on the brain. And it is true that as a first guinea pig, and then many others followed after me, but there was a quite a unusual amplitude of gamma waves in the brain, never described in neuroscience, of a magnitude that was unheard of when meditators engage in this 
unconditional compassion to all beings. So there was a thousandfold increase. So and then compassion and loving kindness are related to well-being. You know, if you are altruistic, you are more likely to be happy that if you are damn selfish. So then, you know, there was a documentary made by the Australian television ABC, and at one point they came to Nepal and sort of followed me. And then at the end they said, maybe this is the happiest person in the world. So it went away for three years, and suddenly. A, a journalist from The Independent in England made a cover story, first page. Mr. Happy has been found, blah, blah, blah. So instead of just vanishing as a funny thing, like he just went viral and then then that's it. <laughs> so I made disclaimers, but nobody's interested in disclaimers. I guess people find it, well, it's a neat idea, you know, it's so good to be like, not the one who jumps highest or runs fastest, but, you know, it doesn't take a long time to realize that it's <laughs> it cannot be it's impossible to say that because how could you know about 7 billion human beings how can you don't know that somewhere in the mountains in somewhere in Africa there is an old lady that is incredibly happy I have no idea yeah reporters they can't let go of a good headline I got the BBC calling me at midnight you know what does it feel and I said well you can be the happiest woman or man in the world if you look for happiness in the right place and Happiness is a skill, so please do cultivate it by all means. First, I was I, I apologized to my scientist friend because they might have think, you know, I spread the rumor, <laughs> very embarrassing. But one of my teachers said, because it came again and again, we were in Korea, and again the newspaper uh, brought that story. So he said, let it be, you know, don't go against it, and then use it for spreading good ideas about compassion, about solidarity, uh, about you know, transforming your mind. So why not? It's, it's a kind of platform, and maybe when I die, they will be on my tomb. Here lies the happiest person <laughs> in the world. It's better than to be called the unhappiest one, but again, it's it's kind of a sweet joke. <laughs> yeah, and if that's how you're measuring your success by how many people you can reach, how much good you can do. Well, there's two kinds of success. One is how much you can better a good person, and that my part is still, I still a lot to travel, to what Buddhism call awakening or sort of inner perfection. So, but at least I have the deep confidence that I, I'm in the right direction thanks to my teachers. So that's success is measure how much endeavor, progress I feel I make. And I have a lot to do, but I'm so grateful that I'm able to progress step by step. So that's for me the inner success, personal success. And then I would measure outer success of how much good you can do in the world, you know, in a modest way in my case. But if I can do something either through spreading ideas or, you know, having started with friends and collaborators, the humanitarian projects, someone where I'm sort of, uh, it became sort of beyond me when I hear that we help 200,000 people in every year. So, well, I didn't really help them hands-on. So something happened as a catalyst and somehow I was part of that. So I just rejoice. And so I think that's a rejoicing in the things you have been doing in your life and also the blessing that you got in your life. That's, I think, good measure of success. A lot of the people that we interview are typically business people. They measure success by how much money they could bring to themselves or their company, as well as kind of always pursuing a new business project. Can you have both? Well, it depends. If you f if you look for fulfillment, happiness, and flourishing, you know it's well known that just betting on being richer, more powerful, 
more famous and all that. It's like hoping to win the lottery. Those are known to be okay achievements, but those are well known that they are not core components of happiness and flourishing. This is well known. So it's not a rocket science. All the psychology will tell you that. It's called the Easterlin paradox. If you are above the poverty line, you have a reasonably decent life in terms of material. If you double, triple, quadruple your income, your happiness is, say, flat. So it helps you to do other things, and it's good if you do use these resources to help others for sure. But in terms of well-being, don't expect too much from that. It doesn't bring it. And even about money, I like very much this study that was done by a social psychologist in Canada, and she studied the effect of on people's happiness to be giving from $20 a month to big amounts if you can. And she studied in 27 countries, and she measured, compared to those who never give anything, their level of well-being. And what she found is people who give regularly means they have a, a component of generosity in their mind. They are about 30% happier than those who don't. So she published a paper in Science, which is the top you know, scientific journal, saying money doesn't buy happiness unless given to others. So that's, for me, a measure of success. <laughs> because what can you do for you with two billion that you cannot do with one? Zero. But for others, you can do twice as much. Can you give an example of meeting someone who the public, by all accounts, would say is very successful, but when you met them, they wouldn't meet your definition of success? Well, I mean, we meet that all the time. People who have all the trappings of success, and you find out that they, are, they have so much in pain, in difficulty. And the dilemma told a very funny story that he was invited to stay in one of those, I don't know, billionaire or whatever, <laughs> home. And you know, everything was so perfect, a lot of servants, no huge swimming pools. And then at the morning, he was brushing his teeth in the bathroom, and he's curious, so he opened a little cabinet, and he saw a lot of sleeping pills, antidepressants, and he, he closed it down, and he said, well, doesn't seem they are too happy. So anyway, you know, I think there are, of course, wealthy, powerful people who found meaning in their life, but usually it comes when they really use their power, use their resources to be of service of others. In Wall Street and Silicon Valley, meditation is popular. Mindfulness is a buzzword. But for a lot of these people, they want to use uh, these skills to kind of be more competitive or take down other companies or other entrepreneurs, other investors. What does that seem like to you? So they might start like that. But interestingly, I have a friend who studied 100 CEOs who took up meditation and then brought it in their company. In the beginning, they were all hesitating for two reasons. They thought it would become softer, and then there's a waste of time. Uh, but they said, then they thought, okay, maybe not. Maybe they become more, people become more attentive, so they can be more productive, and we can squeeze them more hours out of them. So they were, some of them were thinking as well like that. But when they actually did it, they found two things that they didn't actually expect. One, it brought them much better human relationship with their collaborators, with their subordinates, with everyone. And that's a huge thing. We know that a company where it's good working prospers better. What this means a company is good working? It's a good human environment. It's not just they get higher pay and everyone behaves like shark towards each other. It's like basically it's good to work there because people feel good with each other. And then the second thing they noticed, it gives them better judgment. Because instead of having their nose on the problem, 
and immediate and has to be solved now and then you can't wait. They have more space. They could look at it from different directions. And sometimes the best thing is to do nothing for one or two days and see how things... So this was too unexpected quality. So it is a constant sort of worry that mindfulness would be misused. And I think if you say caring mindfulness, there's very less uh, likelihood that it would be misused because they might be mindful psychopaths or snipers, but there's no caring psychopath and no caring snipers. So that already keeps away those who want to use it for a kind of negative purpose. And if some of our listeners who've never meditated before want to start to try it out, what <laughs> would you recommend? Well, there are many good books. Uh, this <laughs> I've written one to, not for just the sake of writing a book, but because everybody was asking that question. So I did a little manual called Why Meditate? But try it because... We need to demystify meditation. There's nothing mysterious. You don't need to be sitting, trying to empty your mind with incense around you and a mango tree. It's really take the loving kindness meditation. You know, we all have unconditional love for a child, for someone dear. But it will last 10, 15 seconds, one minute, then we do something else. We go to about our work. But suppose you take that very beautiful, strong, warm feeling. And instead of letting it disappear after 15 seconds, you cultivate it for 5-10 minutes by reviving it, if coming back if you are distracted, keeping the, the clarity, the vividity, of the, the vividness of that. So that's, that is mind training. That is meditation. So there's nothing mysterious. It's just like you exercise for the piano. You exercise your mind for kindness, for mindfulness, for inner peace, for resilience. All that can be trainer skills and neuroscience tells you that again and again. Thank you very much, Matthew. Welcome. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You'll find interviews there with people like PayPal CEO Dan Shulman and the former CIA director John Brennan. And please leave us a review. It really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Allison Chantel. We'll be back next week with more success. <laughs>